This is Keynote and Policy. I am today's host, Sophia Freuden. I am sitting here with a very special guest. Her name is Chloe Freuden, as you can maybe guess from the last name. She's related to me. She is actually my sister. Um, and I wanted to have her on today's episode to talk about coronavirus, as is the topic that we've had for every episode recently. Um for a very specific reason, um, and I can have her go into a little bit of detail about why I wanted her specifically to come onto the show. Chloe, do you want to give us a little bit of details about who you are and what your relationship is to coronavirus? Sure. Um, my name is Chloe. Thank you for having me on the show. And I am a registered nurse in the state of Washington. I actually work at a major hospital in the Seattle area. And so, as you can imagine, a lot of my day-to-day and my work has been significantly impacted by COVID-19. Okay. So thanks for coming on the show. Um, part of the reason why I wanted to have Chloe on the episode is not just because of nepotism. Uh, I, she and I had been having conversations uh, on the phone and, and via text message in recent days and recent weeks about all of this going on. There are so many different aspects, obviously, to this, uh, obviously to this crisis that we're facing, not just a, a medical crisis, which is the most obvious part of it, I think, but also it's an economic crisis. It's a political crisis. And separately from that, it's a policy crisis. It's a media crisis. It's so many different crises wrapped up to one. And something that stood out to me from the conversations I was having with Chloe were about um, specifically policy issues being brought up in the news. And also as a secondary to that, uh, just like misinformation and sort of quote unquote media hype that gets distributed both in the media itself and also on social media. Um, These two phenomena, I think, have serious impacts on what our society does in response to coronavirus and also how we think about coronavirus. And uh, those, those impacts aren't necessarily good ones. So one of the more recent things that came up and and has been brought up in conversation several times in recent weeks, not just in conversations that I've had with Chloe, but specifically um, op-eds being written about this particular issue is the whole mask thing. Um, As our dear listeners might be aware, uh, President Trump recently had a press appearance a few days ago in which he um, announced that the CDC would be advising people wear cloth masks as a means of spreading or slowing the spread, uh, or sorry, slowing the spread of coronavirus. And this is interesting because a few days before that, I had texted Chloe, giving her a link to an op-ed article printed in the Washington Post, written by an MD that basically discussed how we should all adopt the practice of wearing masks in public. Um, And I don't think the author specified cloth masks or what, though I think he did say that you could easily make a cloth mask at home. And I asked Chloe what her opinion was on this particular article um, and some of the pros and cons of of this piece. Uh, Chloe, do you remember what we talked about in that conversation? Yeah, so basically my opinion of the article. So the the author of the article was strongly advocating for mask use in terms of just the general public wearing a cloth mask on a daily basis um, in order to prevent the spread. And I definitely agree, like methods of hype were used within the article. Um, and it was definitely kind of scare tactic in my opinion. Um, when part of what you're saying about like misinformation and policy and just 
coronavirus being a disaster in general, a lot of what we see in the medical community isn't necessarily matching up with um, recommendations from the World Health Organization or from the CDC. So my concern with the article is they were encouraging widespread mask use across the U.S. by the general public when there's been evidence um, that coronavirus could be airborne, at least for a certain amount of time, it can stay in the air for like about an hour or so. Um, And that's what we're kind of noticing on the front lines, just because transmission has been so pervasive and unclear in terms of you can spread it when you have symptoms or you can spread it without symptoms. And so um, that's why I was hesitant to endorse like a masks for everyone policy. Yeah. Um, I know one thing that you also brought up in that conversation was specifically about how wearing a mask could alter your behavior outside of wearing the mask itself. Like it could induce people. And I think this is especially salient for Americans because Americans tend to be pretty selfish, I would say, as a critique for my own country people. But um, it, it might induce people to behave differently and behave more uh, in more risky ways, right? So if you're wearing a mask, you might wash your hands less, you might be inclined to go out more, you know, you might think that you can sort of swap social distancing and good hygiene for mask wearing, because all of a sudden now that's like something that's being promoted by the CDC. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, no, you, that's exactly right. Um, I mean, you can see on social media, people having coronavirus parties still, I think, the public has had a very poor response to the encouraged social distancing practices that the government has recommended and the CDC. Um, And like you said, I don't, I just, my fear would be that people would use masks as like a get out of jail free card. Like, Oh, I have a mask. Now I can do whatever I want. I don't need to follow social distancing guidelines. I can still have parties and see people like I normally would before, you know, coronavirus. Yeah. Um, This is kind of a technical question. Um, Can you talk about the different kind of masks and why like the N95 mask, for example, is better than like a surgical mask and why maybe a cloth mask isn't necessarily a good, a good measure to be using? So N95 masks are certified by the FDA. Um, They're technically a respirator, which is different than um, like a surgical mask. A surgical mask is just a physical barrier, but it is not, it does not seal to your face. And N95 has to be um, usually fitted and approved by like an occupational health specialist. So they, they fit very tight to your face. Uh, they don't allow for any outside air to come in through the edges of the mask. All the air that you're breathing in and out Um, comes through the filtration system of the mask itself. Whereas like a surgical mask is basically just kind of a loosely fitted piece of um, a couple layers of paper. And that, that those masks are intended for um, like to protect you from droplets as opposed to filtering the air that you breathe. And then a cloth mask is an even, you know, more, um, I don't know how I would say this, like a, it, it does even less than a surgical mask. It's just, it, again, it's not meant as a filtration system. It's meant as a 
physical barrier to protect your face from droplets. And I mean, it can work both ways. It protects you from getting droplets on your face, and it also protects you from spreading droplets. Like when you're out in public in the grocery store, if you happen to cough or sneeze and you're wearing, you know, even a cloth mask, it can catch those droplets. Um, But it won't, you know, filter the air that you're, you know, breathing out when you breathe breath out. Yeah. um, I am no microbiologist, nor am I an epidemiologist. But if you're going to wear a cloth mask outside, make sure you sanitize it. Um, That's actually another question I had for you regarding masks. Um, Do you worry that like the usage of especially cloth masks, like masks that can be reused um, or people just using masks in general without knowing how to properly like take them off after they've been exposed potentially to the virus? um, Do you worry that these masks could become like a means of infection themselves? I do. And actually recently when I was in the grocery store, I saw a woman wearing a mask and she was also wearing um, like fabric gloves, like gloves that you would wear to keep your hands warm in the snow or in the cold. Mm -hmm. And she was touching, you know, different various objects in the store, collecting produce and what have you. And I just wondered like what her plan was for those gloves once she got home. Like, is she going to wash them between each, you know, outing or is she just going to like keep them at home? I mean, I don't know. I don't know if people think about these things. And um, objects that carry like inanimate objects that carry germs are called fomites and so i just i worry that these cloth masks aren't getting cloth masks and gloves aren't getting you um cleaned in between use and that they're just collecting (laughs) covid you know as they are used every time no it's concerning i i don't know personally what to think about it um i am currently in the state of massachusetts in boston specifically and the case count in um Massachusetts, I mean, I I haven't checked this morning, but I think it's approaching 10,000 if it hasn't already passed that point. And most of the concentration of uh, population in Massachusetts is here in Boston, right? The state of Massachusetts isn't very big and the Boston metropolitan area takes up actually quite quite a big chunk of the real estate within the state. And I just worry, like every time I go out, which is I try to do so as seldomly as possible. I just like worry, you know, touching anything, touching a doorknob, going to the store, which I avoid doing unless I absolutely have to. Um, The other day I had to go to the pharmacy, which was kind of a nerve wracking experience because the pharmacy that I go to is the pharmacy that's part of my university's health services, which is attached to like the, the pharmacy itself is the lobby of the building where all of the health services are. So I know that if there's any Harvard students still on campus, which admittedly, there's very few of us still here, um, or if there's any, you know, professors, teachers, employee, uh, employees of the university that are using Harvard University health students, which many of them do, uh, they're going through that lobby, they're going through that pharmacy and up into the building where the actual doctor's offices are. Mm-hmm. And the whole, you know, six minute period of time that I was there, I was just thinking about all these things. And kind of paranoid about it, but at a certain point in time, you can't let all of this paralyze you. Otherwise you just won't live your mm-hmm. life. Um, even more so than we're not living our lives as a result of social distancing and, and whatever else. Um, I want to pivot to a slightly different topic. So as a uh, medical worker, what is, how is your life at home impacted by this? Um, that's a really good question. My life at home, I would say, is pretty comparable to everyone else's right now. Just 
pretty much being at home and staying at home. Um, but you know, I'm a health professional and so is my boyfriend. And so he works with, um, the adult population at large, much in a much more intimate way than I do. Um, and so, you know, even though we're at home together, we do have like a reasonable amount of fear. I would say that we are, you know, putting each other at risk, even being at home with one another. Um, you know, because we are still working regular nine to five jobs, um, whereas much of the population right now isn't. And so we're still going out into the world. We'll st- we're still meeting with the public and um, potentially getting exposed and bringing that home to one another. So that's definitely a worry. Yeah, I know. I mean, they say you shouldn't do this. Um, and by they, I'm not really sure who I'm talking about. But I think there's this idea right now that social media is kind of a, a toxic place. So when you're obviously going to get the most sensational stories. And a lot of those right now are pretty negative ones. But on social media, especially on Twitter, I've seen a lot of things recently where there's like doctors in New York or New Jersey, um, which is admittedly like an extreme case in the United States, uh, in which they have to um, basically like social distance, socially distance from their families at home because their families might, um, you know, it's one thing if you and your your significant other are both healthcare workers, because you're still like, you're both at an elevated risks. So socially distancing like from each other might not make a whole lot of sense, depending on the context of the situation. Um, but there are examples of people, doctors whose spouses or children might be immunocompromised, for example, and they have to socially distance from their family, which to me is so sad, uh, obviously. And it just goes to show like the sacrifice that we sort of, I think expect our medical professionals to to take right now. Um, I, it's so bizarre. I don't think anyone signed up for like this specific job necessarily, unless you're working for like the infectious disease unit of the CDC. You know, it's not like this is something you're like, you know, what I was planning on doing today. Um, kind of ruining my life to help save people's lives. Like, I don't, I don't think that's anything that any reasonable doctor signed up to do or reasonable nurse. Um, but here we are. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of unfortunate. Yeah, that makes me think of, um, sorry. Oh, that no, makes go me ahead. think of, um, there's been a lot of debate amongst nurses, um, like in our various unions and just across the country as to whether nurses and doctors should be getting hazard pay, um, which a lot of the people who are against it are, you know, kind of saying what you were just saying, like, well, this is what you signed up for. Like you signed up to be a healer and a nurse and a doctor and, you know, like basically suck it up and this is your job. But I saw a really good argument um, somewhere. I can't remember exactly where, but someone compared it to being in the military. Like when you're in the military, you get a base pay, but then when you're actually deployed, you get additional pay for the risk that you're taking basically. And so I thought that was a really good comparison and that, yes, like we have a base pay for our normal, <laughs> our normal workload, but um, in these crazy times, um, especially nurses like in New York and on the East Coast and down South who are really facing high numbers of COVID patients, I do, I like tr- fully believe that hazard pay is a necessity for them. Yeah, sadly, I think 
kind of the opposite is ha- happening. Like, I, I can't speak for every hospital in every community, but I think you were telling me about a community out there in the Seattle area in which they were slashing the salaries of city employees, including their firefighters who are also, you know, on the front lines of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know it's a devastating issue. And obviously, like, we're in the middle of an economic recession now, which is so bizarre to think about, um, considering just a few months ago, the economy, I mean, the U.S. economy was, according to certain measures, right, it depends on what you look at, but if you're looking at the stock market, for example, it's doing the best it ever had. Um, so it's so funny how just a few months of of time and one one single pathogen later and where our economy is like at a standstill. Mm-hmm. Um, related to equitable pay, among other things, for hazards associated with the job, but also more systemic issues embedded with working as a medical professional. Um, Do you think that this pandemic will have an actual effect on how we deal with the healthcare system in the United States, be it from like sort of an access to, to insurance situation or from, you know, the, the, the standpoint of maybe we should not have to have doctors take on, doctors and nurses alike take on just um, huge amounts of debt to go to school to become licensed healthcare professionals, etc. Do you think that this pandemic will actually affect any of that? Or do you think that's just like some kind of idealistic conversation that's happening right now? Um, I would like to say yes, but I, I'm hesitant to. I, I truly believe it depends on who is in power after all of this is over. Like if Trump gets reelected, then no, I I really don't think there will be hardly any policy changes, but you know, if things switch and a Democrat gets into office, maybe, but I, I'm, I don't know. I don't want to be a pessimist, but I just, it's so difficult to get any meaningful policy passed um, in the current political climate. And it's very sad to me that something this awful could happen and we don't see any true progress from it um, in terms of policy change. But with the bipartisan, you know, footing that so many leaders have and the strife that's in Congress, I I just don't think (laughs) anything meaningful could come from this unfortunately. Sadly. Yeah. And I would, this is just a personal take and maybe it's because I personally have a deep disdain for this human, but I think that Mitch McConnell is actually maybe more of an influential figure in terms of determining what legislation and what reform gets passed just as speaker of the house or sorry, not speaker of the house. Um, the majority leader in the Senate, um, he has a lot of power. I mean, he sets the agenda, he sets the docket for the Senate. And that's like so far sort of been his um, favorite tool to use to, to stymie any any efforts by the House Democrats or by even the Senate Democrats to do much of anything, mm-hmm. right? Um, even before anything gets to Donald Trump's desk to right. sign. Because there is this idea that like, depending on the numbers that you have in both the House and the Senate, you know, if the Senate, if the president vetoes something, that both chambers want passed and they have enough numbers, I mean, they can override mm-hmm. his veto, which is sort of an extreme example, right? That happens very infrequently in American history. I mean, I, I can't think of a single time off the top of my head that that's happened. I, I'm sure it has, mm-hmm. you know, but I I don't have such a photographic memory of like major legislation in, in the U.S. Congress. Um, 
we'll see what happens. Um, for our for our listeners, uh, just so you know, the 2020 election still is a thing. <laughs> yeah. It's easy to forget about, I think, in, in the news cycle, the endless news cycle that is COVID-19. Um, and I know the Democratic Convention has been, de- been delayed until August, which I think was a wise move. I do worry about them delaying the election as a result of this, which like might ultimately be necessary because think about it. Most states have um, in-person voting still. Uh, Republicans are naturally very hesitant to have any sort of mail-in, mail-in voting systems because they knew it, they would know it would hurt, you know, the Republican Party. And so they don't want to employ those systems, despite the fact that it would save people's lives. And then you would get all these people congregating, waiting in line very close to one another in most states. You know, that just sounds like COVID, COVID-19 round two waiting to happen um, come November when the weather's getting worse again, which granted, we don't know if there's any sort of se- seasonal effect on on the virus yet, but... It doesn't seem like and there then, is. Like the flip side of that coin, if you have people who are afraid to get in line and stand close to one another, and then you have extremely poor voter turnout, just in general. Oh yeah. Again, and this is why why people are advocating for mail in mail in voting acro- you know across the mm-hmm. United States in this very special circumstance because it, you shouldn't have to ask people to risk their lives, you know, or the lives of others um, by forcing them to vote in person. Mm-hmm. Um, so given all of these scenarios, it's sort of like, well, I mean, if we can't have mail-in, mail-in voting across the board, should we maybe delay the election so that voter turnout isn't depressed, mm-hmm. you know? Um, what, I mean, what costs and what benefits are there with that? Like, that means that Donald Trump's in office for longer, but like, that's sort of a political con- concern, whereas like, my primary concern is is about the health and, and well-being of the American par- populace writ large. Mm-hmm. So it's a very complicated cost benefit calculus that you have to go through when determining what policy to take in that particular circumstance. Um, Sort of related to that topic. um, I know there's concern that as we reach the apex um, or are nearing the apex of cases uh, in New York city uh, and specifically New York state, I should say, um, and it's predicted that the apex of, of many states and many communities will be reached within the next like two to six weeks here. I'm hoping that's the case for Massachusetts. I, I haven't heard anything specifically about it, but we seem to be following New York in terms of our case growth, um, not number wise, but just the general trajectory of it. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that there could be like rolling outbreaks of this um, going forward? Like, do you think that we could see like second or third wave of, of cases spike? I mean, it just depends truly on um, how long stay-at-home orders are implemented for. I I do fear that if governments do start to see, you know, after the next coming weeks, if there is a downturn in cases, that stay-at-home orders will be prematurely lifted and that there could be a resurgence of, in, of infections. Um, but we'll see it. It's very interesting that, you know, some states have still held out on implementing a stay-at-home order at all. And those states are starting to be very heavily hit by COVID-19. But I think that's truly, yeah, a time will, time will tell. And hopefully, you know, governors are smart and continue to implement these policies because a national stay-at-home order has yet to be implemented. Yeah. Well, and I don't think at this stage that Donald Trump's not going to enact one. Um, and 
I would be shocked if he did in the future. I mean, again, especially if we're, we're hitting the apex of the case numbers in a lot of the most heavily impacted areas in the United States. I don't think Donald Trump looking at his like own political and economic situation will will enact a stay at home order. Mm-hmm. And it is it is, you know, I don't think it's something that's so obvious. Like, I don't know if, if someone put me in the presidency, which please don't ever. Uh, but if someone put me in the presidency and was like, all right, are you going to enact a stay at home order just like across the board? Um, I view that with a similar level of skepticism as I do a somewhat unrelated policy matter, which is like across the board minimum wage. Like, obviously, I think that the U.S. minimum wage right now is, is way too low. I think it's still sitting at $7.25, which it hasn't been touched since 2009, I want to say. Um, I, I do think it should be increased, but like to what extreme and like for what communities, you know, I don't think there's a one size fits all approach for things like that. And I think it might be a similar situation for um, COVID. But then again, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm not a public health expert. Um, I'm just a, a girl with a podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, speaking about local governance, this is sort of one of the last issues I wanted to, to dig into. And it's, it's, it's less related to health, but because you're from Washington State, uh, I wanted to talk about it. Um, there is a lawsuit that was filed in King County, which if people don't know, that's the county where Seattle is located. In, in Washington state in which uh, the plaintiff, which is a small sort of unknown nonprofit organization uh, sued or is in the process of suing Fox news for spreading. Um, what well, I think that it wasn't, wasn't labeled as misinformation in, in the lawsuit it was labeled as. Um, ooh. Uh, okay. They disseminated a quote unquote false information about the coronavirus. Um, and it's going to be very curious to see where how this lawsuit goes, just because fighting uh, misinformation or, or false information uh, with a, a legal case um, could run into some major roadblocks. I, I mean, like roadblocks. Obviously, we have the First Amendment, which tends to protect pretty much most speech in the United mm-hmm. States. Um, and so this, this lawsuit could get just tossed out. But Seattle has been at least in the past, an epicenter of, of cases, mm-hmm. of COVID cases within the last couple of months. Do you think that misinformation spread by Fox News or other similar organizations has had a hand in the number of cases that those communities see? Um, that's a good question. I don't I don't know that it's misinformation per se. Like, like I don't think <laughs> Fox News itself is the reason why we had such a delayed response um, in terms of preventing the spread of COVID and our reaction to such a spike in cases. Um, I would say that's more, you know, we were working with the basically Homeland Security information that was given to us from the federal government. And so it seems like in January, you know, the federal government was having these security briefings on COVID-19. A lot of it was kept hush-hush. And then, you know, some... (laughs) senators and Congress people had uh, committed insider trading based on the information that they were given. But as far as like a state level reaction to um, preparing for a pandemic and reacting to a spike in cases, I don't know how much Fox News spreading misinformation had a hand in that delay, if that makes sense. I could see... um, just more like anecdotal people that I know who use Fox news as a, you know, as their primary source of 
information when it comes to, you know, global and national happenings, there definitely was like a delayed um, belief that this was a serious concern for everyone and not just for the elderly. Um, But yeah, that's more anecdotal. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know unless you're like some kind of data whiz, like coming over big data, you know, like either case counts and like spreads and trajectories and then like mashing that up with like the spread of news sources and assessing the like the virility of said news sources, et cetera, et cetera. Like it's impossible to know. It's just always so concerning to me. I mean, Fox News, I think, is the most watched news program in the United States. Um, and is obviously one of the largest news programs, I think, just in general in the US, because there are surprisingly few conservative news sources in America, especially those mm-hmm. on TV. But there's a large number of like more liberal leaning programs such as CNN, MSNBC, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so you, I mean, like Fox News is just such a, such a centralized organization, right? And they have such important political sway over what happens in this country. Like, I, I don't doubt that if Fox News didn't exist or, or if something like Fox News didn't exist, Donald Trump would not have gotten elected, mm-hmm. you know, like, and maybe that's a hot take from me. Maybe that's not, you know, entirely factually accurate. It's kind of hard to prove, but based off what I've seen, that's what I think, mm-hmm. you know, and because Sean Hannity, you know, was quoted specifically in this lawsuit in King County as saying things like, oh, this is just a hoax to prevent the pro- the president from getting reelected. And then I think another Fox News host of some kind, I forget her name, but she was actually fired for saying this. She said that it's it's an impeachment hoax. Like basically it's, it's oh, the impeachment didn't work. Coronavirus is just round two, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I think that the lawsuit is trying to argue that these statements downplay the severity of the, of, of the threat of coronavirus mm-hmm. um, and may have misled viewers to think that the disease wasn't dangerous, which then could contribute to them, you know, again, not practicing social distancing, mm-hmm. going outside, not washing their hands like they should, mm-hmm. which is, it's also as a side note, so concerning that as a society, we don't know how to properly wash our hands and it takes a global pandemic for it to become a well-known and well-understood concept. And I'm sure people still get it wrong. Like I worry about myself, you know, like I try to follow all the guidelines and whatever else, but you know, I'm just a lay person mm-hmm. in my own place, you know, trying to do the best I can. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Like you said, I think it was bad <sighs> okay. that it's taken a pandemic to bring that to light. Um, and I, going back to like the lawsuit, thinking about it, I could totally see a lawsuit coming from some small, you know, liberal, not-for-profit organization because it is Washington state. Um, I just don't know. I feel like, the effects of Fox News, you know, delaying any public reaction to coronavirus, that was probably national. It wasn't just in Washington state. It's just, I could see it being like a hot topic in Washington, because like you said, we did kind of have the first, we were like the first epicenter of the outbreak. Yeah. And the the whole case, I mean, the the epicenter wasn't just located within Seattle proper, which is pretty liberal. But it spread through a lot of the sort of Seattle, Tacoma metropolitan area, which a number of those suburbs are pretty conservative leaning, you know, plausibly have a number of of Fox News viewers mm-hmm. um, as residents. So I think that the, the lawsuit itself was trying to invoke the Consumer Protection Act as a means of just arguing that Fox News endangered its mm-hmm. viewers and, yeah, like exacerbated the case count 
and mortality rate um, in King County as a result of their rather reckless language. Um, well, we'll see what happens if that comes out of that lawsuit. It'll, it's something that I'm keeping an eye on for my own uh, interests. I don't know if my listeners know this, but I take an interest in, amongst other things, disinformation and other means of sort of information operations or information warfare, for, usually from a more international perspective, right? My specialty is Russia, so I'm, I'm interested in that topic. And one of the major means there are of sort of fighting uh, disinformation and information operations in general is in the courts, right? Like the, the sort of lawfare approach is like another means of attacking this. Mm-hmm. So keeping these case case precedents in mind as we move forward, specifically in the U.S. system, will be so important in determining the future of, of uh, either false information, misinformation, disinformation, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. So, Okay. So another topic that we can talk about... Uh, uh, going back to our very first topic in this conversation is the mask thing. Um, and specifically, <laughs> oh dear, what our president did slash said in the same speech um, in which he gave his announcement about the CDC's recommendation for wearing masks, which was that he said that, yeah, the CDC is recommending that you wear a mask when you go out in public. It's supposed to slow the spread of coronavirus whatever. And then he was like, I'm probably not going to wear one. Like it's an advisory, you know, I look at myself and I look at the Oval Office and I look at other great leaders and I think "Mm, that doesn't, it just doesn't fit the picture, right? Like it doesn't fit the aesthetic or whatever. I'm not quoting him verbatim, but this is like more or less what he said. And I just, (laughs) I think it's really interesting. I, I think it perfectly demonstrates his refusal to wear a mask perfectly demonstrates um, it kind of gives us like a glimpse into his like truest insecurities as a president. He doesn't want to be seen as like weak. And I feel like a mask to him is a symbol of, you know, a weakness or appearing ill or some, in some way, shape or form him bending to the power of coronavirus, especially like, he gave the example of I can't imagine wearing a mask in front of basically like foreign diplomats and Kings and Queens and people that I meet with, like I need to seem strong and healthy and powerful. Basically that was what I took from his explanation of why he didn't want to wear a mask. Oh yeah. I mean, his personal psychology has informed, I believe so much of his personal decision-making as the president within the last two to three has it already been three years it has been three years my goodness okay wow in the last three years you know that he's been president um and this is something that's sort of a a hot topic in in political science or international affairs you know there are these uh theories like these international relations or poli-sci theories in in which people try to argue that the personal psychology or just like the the mentality mindset of, of a leader is so important in terms of what kind of policy decisions they make, you know, how they interact in the political sphere, either with other world leaders or domestically. And it's something that kind of gets shoved to the side because it's, it's hard to study. You know, it's not like we have a, I don't know Donald Trump's personal psychologist, if he even has one. I don't know Vladimir Putin's personal psychologist, if he even has one, you know. Um, and it, with, like, unless you have those kinds of reports, it's so hard to see. That being said, when you get into a position of power, especially in authoritarian regimes where that power is super centralized, but even in democracies, you know, the presidency of the United States is, is pretty powerful, especially on the, on the foreign policy 
um, side of things. You know, when they get into office, it's it's sort of like, well, what is this person going to do and how are they going to behave? And I think that Donald Trump is actually a really good example of like the scholastic community needing to, to look at these theories and look at these hypotheses again, because Donald Trump's not a good faith actor. I think as most other presidents have been like, like them or hate them, like Obama, George Bush, Bill Clinton, more or less all cut from the same cloth in terms of how they view the presidency, right? They make very different policy decisions and have different political ideologies, but they don't use the presidency in the same way that Donald Trump uses it. Donald Trump and his bad faith acting as a president is so fascinating, whether it's, him not willing to wear a mask because he doesn't want to look weak or him trying to dismantle any policy that Obama ever enacted for what seems to be mostly personal and probably racist reasons. Um, It's just so interesting. Uh, We'll see. We'll see how that goes in the future. We'll see if this conversation gets, gets revived. I hope it does. I'm a fan of the sort of individual level analysis theories, but that's just me. Sorry to, to IR nerd out on you a little bit, Chloe. I know that's not your... It's not your normal well, for that. I think it's also <laughs> ballpark. I think it's also interesting in in how, for a majority of his presidency, he's utilized the media, whether that be news or social media or his Twitter account, as a very powerful um, kind of communicative tool for his base and firing up his base. And I feel like that is what is stemming his base's fear that, you know, coronavirus is some crazy political tactic to dismantle his grip that he had on the upcoming election. And, you know, coronavirus is a very real, very scary pandemic situation. And Trump's response to this has been extremely interesting. I think it's like the first time we've truly seen fear from him. And, like real emotion. I don't know. Yeah. I would say the only other time I've seen evidence of him being like truly perturbed by something was back when the Mueller investigation was still underway. And it was unclear what kind of results would come out of that. Um, His Twitter would often just melt down um, often either very late at night or early in the morning, you know, you'd see tweets from him at four or 5 a.m. Um, saying that the whole thing was a hoax, that it was a witch hunt, this, that, or the other, you know, some of the more personal anecdotes um, that you can read in Bob Woodward's fear among other tomes written, you know, in the last like couple of years uh, about like what happens in Trump's inner circle have relayed as much information, right? He is actually a deeply pretty paranoid person, it seems like, and is, it gets concerned about a lot of things, but only if they're personal to him and his, his family, right? He doesn't really care much about pretty much anything else. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't know if he's, he's truly afraid right now, especially because weirdly his approval ratings have been going up in the last like mm-hmm. week or two, which is kind of concerning. I'm like, wow, he's like butchering, right. <laughs> totally like botching the, the way the U.S. government should to respond to this. Like, it's not the worst it could be, but it could definitely be way better. Um, and his approval ratings is going up and it's so disappointing to me that so many Americans are willing to reward him for the lowest of bars, right? Like they're willing to, to give him credit for like literally anything. And it's so disappointing. Well, yeah. It's particularly disappointing. I forget where I read this and I should know my source, but in the months leading up to him taking office, he was briefed on um, various potential national security issues um, with Obama 
in the room, basically running different scenarios that could happen and what the presidential response needs to be in these situations. And a respiratory disease pandemic was one of the scenarios that they went through and had a step-by-step plan for. And he has failed to execute nearly every sequence of that plan that he had practiced prior to coming into office. Well, if you were to ask him about it now, he probably wouldn't even no, remember No, I'm it, sure. You know? And I genuinely think he might not remember it. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't I don't think, like, obviously he would deny it no matter what. Like, he would say, like, oh, it never happened or whatever. Um, but I think he genuinely, like, probably wouldn't remember it. And that's just, like, Donald Trump in a nutshell for but you. It shouldn't really matter uh, whether or not either. he remembers it himself. Like, he wasn't the only one in the room with during this briefing. You know, he had many staffers and whoever else around him, like his team should know the plan and what to do. And maybe they did try to execute it. And, you know, he just was very, you know, hot headed and stubborn about not wanting to scare the public before an election and appear weak. But. Oh yeah. I mean, I don't know the details of it, but it does seem like, especially his um, advisors, either at the CDC or I forget the name of the organization that Dr. Anthony Fauci works for. It's not the CDC. It's like the, National Institutes of Infectious Diseases or something like that, like him, any of his like primary policy advisors, right? I'm sure all of these people have been begging him to take these measures. You know, he has definitely butted heads with um, Dr. Fauci a number of times publicly. You know, you can see that in the news. So I don't know what to make of it other than to be disappointed, but unsurprised. Mm -hmm. So uh, we'll make it through somehow, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Maybe not for the better in terms of how this disease could have gone, but uh, there's nothing I don't think that either you or I can personally do about it. I think my fear is if it, I want it to get better and I want it to get better soon. But my fear is that when that does happen, the rhetoric will be, oh, this was a total overreaction. And I could see Trump profiting off of that narrative. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm sure that rhetoric will get used, at least by, you know, Fox News pundits or whatever, regardless of of whether that's actually the case or not, which I don't think it will be. You know, um, I would say that I remember, you know, I remember this uh, the swine flu uh, epidemic back in, I think, 2009, 2010, whatever year that was, and how people were pretty freaked out about it. The World Health Organization was pretty freaked out about it. You know, there was like a lot of measures being taken into place. Like I remember kids like not being able to attend school because they had contracted it. And there was like a minimum period of time that they had to wait out before they could go back to school. But all things considered, compared to this, it was pretty mild. And I don't think I think the the mortality rate and the the overall like case count of that was like fairly similar to the seasonal flu. And people were definitely pretty mad about it. They were like, wow, the, the World Health Organization really freaked out. You know, the CDC was freaking out about this there was way a strong overreaction but you know like who's to say that it couldn't like it would have gotten worse without that overreaction um we don't we can't know that counterfactual you know the disease itself is probably not as bad as coronavirus just because um h1n1 is a virus that's been around in the human human populace since 1917 i want to say so you know it's it's a known entity um, whereas coronavirus is novel as everyone keeps describing it. I think at a certain point in time, we have to stop calling it novel when it's been around for like months. Um, but I don't know. I, I hope not. I hope that they don't 
you know, point to this and say, oh, it was a re- over- overreaction. It's just like a political method of downplaying this whole thing. But that's probably exactly what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, all right. I think we're about out of time here. But I just wanted to thank you so much for joining me on this episode. And I also wanted to give out a shout out to our sound producer, Steph, who patiently sits through all of our ramblings and edits out all of the ums and ors and whatever else. Um, You can check us out on arbiter.org. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Um, This is one of two episodes we're going to have coming out uh, pretty soon here. So be sure to give them both a listen. And uh, thanks for tuning in.